Are you struggling to find the right professional talent for your project? Are you working with a limited budget? We are so excited about our next sponsor, Casting Networks. I have personally used Casting Networks to release a number of projects for free to the industry's largest network of professional performers for my commercial work and for my very first short film, Strange Thing. Creators can manage submissions, schedule auditions, request and review self-tapes, and book top talent for their projects all in one place all for free. On Casting Networks, you can create an account and send your casting call to thousands of professional talent. So join Casting Networks, the industry's preferred casting platform where more than 1.2 million performers have scheduled over 14 million auditions. That's a lot of auditions. Visit www.castingnetworks.com slash movies to create an account for free today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out on September 13th. Yay! I'm Liz Manish. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Speed of Life and Bread and Butter. And I'm currently in development on 376 more. I'm a distribution <laughs> consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative, and I do sales. This week, we welcome producer, writer, and director, McKinney. Kale Chowhari onto the show to talk about his short film, Amy Victoria, the series, The Myth of Control, and his process as a writer and a producer. We also talk about an article discussing how digital creators are uncertain about pushing into Hollywood because they don't want to lose creative control of their projects. And Liz and I talk about what we do when we hit a brick wall on a project. But first, Liz, how are you doing today? Uh, we have COVID. I mean, I don't have COVID, <laughs> but my son and my husband have COVID and we all live in the same small square footage. So I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for the COVID to hit me. I've had two negative tests so far and everyone else has positive tests and I have no symptoms, but the COVID is here. The COVID has finally reached our house. Wow. Do they have sim- symptoms of any kind? They do. They both have symptoms. It's not horrific. It's lethargy and fever. And my son's fever went down today on day technically three and then Sean's just tired and a little congested Mm. but it's just weird because I'm the one who gets everyone sick usually right and so Mm. now I'm the one who's not sick so I'm I'm thinking either it's gonna hit like a brick wall like any second or I've like won a lottery ticket in the COVID (laughs) world you have COVID lottery ticket. Possibly. So you're just free. <laughs> yeah. You haven't had it yet, right? Like you're still no. holding out. So we're, we've, we've fallen. We're a domino that has fallen. But yeah, I'm one of the few people I know who hasn't had it. Yeah. I used to be that person. Just so you know, it used to be me already. Yeah. Besides family members who will never get tested. So we will not know <laughs> if they will have oh, it or God, not. I'm so sorry about that. Anyways, moving on. Much love to them anyways. You know, much love to anyone. You know, it's just that's however you want to do your thing. It's all good. I support it as long as you support me the way I want to live my life. But yeah, I don't know what else is going on. Anything, you know, I mean, COVID. Yeah, that's a that's a terrible thing. Big deal. But yeah, what else is going on? There's got to well, be something something on the movie side. What's yeah, happening? The only other thing is that, you know, Amy and I had our, our regular, we had two meetings a week usually and we had our meeting. I still managed to produce pages last night and we still managed to meet today. It was like half call and show and tell with Amy over Zoom showing her, look at this shell we found on the ground yesterday. Yesterday means anything time. Mm. Look at this. You know, it was basically him telling Amy about 15 million things. And then as soon as he walked away, I'd go, okay, what scene am I writing tomorrow, Amy? And she'd go, oh, let's do the fortune teller scene. And then he'd come back and be like, look at this candle, Amy. So 
still managed to get stuff done in the midst of the COVID. And so that I think is noteworthy in of itself. That's very sweet. (laughs) Look at this candle. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) You tell me what I'm doing. Yes. Oh, I don't know. Drowning in work. Yeah. Drowning in work in more ways than one, I should say, I suppose. I had to work from the office for the first time ever last week. Did I talk about this? Well, you were at the office when we recorded the show. Oh, right. Yeah. So we could talk about it. It was, it was okay. It was fine. It was great. I mean, there were great parts about it. I would have to say, because I got to see people in person, especially one day I saw one person, one human, which was nice. The, The second day, I think I saw three humans. It was, it was a lot of humans. It was more than I was expecting. And, and you know, I know some people haven't seen more than like a couple of times ever. So it was cool to like, you know, just have some moments to chat with people. But yeah, I have a couple of things to talk about. It's it's funny. It's like, I hadn't only really been thinking, I started doing this, I think before last week, but I didn't think of it as being important. But I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting and it's not been fruitful so far really. But <laughs> so here's what I'm doing. I'm going on to LinkedIn and I type in talent agent, or talent manager mm-hmm. genre, you know, maybe. And then I just see how many people pop up in my, in my, my seconds or first, you know, and then I just go through that list. And then I look at that person on LinkedIn. I type their name into IMDb pro and I see who their client list is. So I see like what Ooh. kind of clients they have. Are they managing writers? Are they managing directors? Are they doing actors only? Are they people similar to me, different than me, more experienced, less experienced. And then based on that, then I'll friend them. <laughs> If I feel like <laughs> if they're like people who are like, okay, you know, someone that I would actually be a good fit for or a good match. And then if they accept my my friendship, which only two have, I think so far, then I, I write them a little message about who I am and, you know, why I friended them and how I thought we, you know, we might be a good fit for each other. So that's what I've been doing. It's interesting. It's like I le- I'm learning a lot about like the kinds of people who have managers or agents because it's actually people who I wouldn't expect necessarily to have managers or agents. There's a lot of people who like never made a feature before, just made short films, yeah. just maybe don't even have any credits to their name on IMDb even. Like they just have like are writing this thing that's in development, you know? And so it was kind of interesting like to see like that people who have done far less than I have are being represented by by professionals in the industry to get work. And then, you know, there's people like us who have done lots of things and don't have any kind of management whatsoever. You but know? it's not, but again, like it's not a meritocracy, right? So it's like your experience <laughs> means nothing. It's like, it's like, do you have the flavor of the month script that they're interested in or the idea that they right. think is super sexy or whatever? Are you uh, their cousin's daughter? Right. Are you their cousin's cousin's friend who makes movies? Right. Who got connected. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little bit too, no, you know, whatever, no, I cynical. Think you are. I think you're being accurate. <laughs> Do not worry about that. <laughs> but yeah, but so that's been a fun process to, to just sort of see what's going on on there. And then the other thing I've been doing is I've just been like friending people on LinkedIn who like want to be my friend and then um, just talk to them. Like so that one person was like a writer in Australia and I was like, well, what scripts do you write? Do you have anything in the sci-fi, you know, horror genres that you are looking to get made or whatever? And she was like, oh no, but like, I have a lot of writer friends. Like, can I reach out to my writer friends and let them know what you're looking for? And I was like, sure, that would be great. And then I got two scripts sent to me. So one, one, it was a half send. One was like, we talked a bunch and and then he was like, yeah, well, you know, I don't do anything on, on the spec anymore. So if you want to option my, my script, you have to pay for it. So if you want to 
read it still, let me know. And so I haven't decided if I want to spend the time to read it, if I have to pay for it. Liz is shaking her head and don't. I was thinking about how I recently had a meeting with a writer who approached me on Twitter and he sent me like six scripts because he said, here are log lines for all the projects that and here are reasons why you should read them. And I was like, oh, well, these few sound great, but, you know, be warned, I really take a long time to read and I'm going to stop if I don't think it's interesting. And he said, that's fine. And then when I met with him, he like watched maybe one trailer of one of my movies and like that was it and i just i'm hearing like this guy that you're talking to in australia and i'm thinking like where's the two-way street here (laughs) like he's just there he's like this enticing like he sees himself as this like enticing opportunity for you but he's not doing any due diligence on you and there's no effort to collaborate I think he watched uh, he watched a couple of the shorts and well, I think he watched something. the trailer for for the alternate and he said it looks good. He's also a director too. You know, he's like directed his own movies. Oh, so if that's maybe his focus, then he's not. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't like he just doesn't feel like he feels like his his work is worth a certain amount of money or like a, or any his kind work of money. Is. And that he just doesn't feel like he's at the stage where he wants to collaborate in that way. To me, it seems like, well, if you've got a script and then you have a director who could be potentially interested in making it, like, why wouldn't you want to collaborate with that, with that person? Because if they do get the movie made, you're going to get paid, right? So it's like to no risk. Yeah. <laughs> thing for you to do unless he's actively pursuing opportunities with that script at this moment which it sounds like he's right. not i don't know maybe maybe he's pursuing it in the way that like oh this guy wants to read it i'll tell him that it's you know i have to pay it <laughs> you have to pay for it right because it was funny because we both did like a, a list of like here's what i'm looking for and here's what i'm looking for and i was like oh this totally matches up and i think he even said on spec in one of his things i was like oh spec perfect me too that's what i want to do things on spec and then at the end him for him to say oh i don't you know you, if you're not going to pay for it you can't do anything but like he's like do you still want to read it it's like well no it's not an enticing offer to want to read your script if you're telling me that you're not going to give it away that there's no chance of collaboration that like, right. you have like, i have to pay you for it it's like maybe there's a, a thousand other scripts that are better to read than that one but i think i mean we can talk about this later or we can you know it doesn't have to be a whole conversation but the reason i brought up the scenario that i was in recently is like like writers are even more powerless than directors. And I think, uh, you know, this is maybe a, a certain unique situation that you find yourself in. But I think a lot of writers could really benefit from seeking out directors and forming partnerships rather than waiting for the system to pick them up, just like directors. Like this idea of like, may- maybe he, a lot of writers see the directors as like an enemy that's going to take advantage of them in some way. But it's like, we're being fucked over as just as much as yeah. writers are. So it's like, if we join for Forces and then produce right. the work together. I'm working with two writers on two projects and they work their ass off on these projects that we do together. So I'm just thinking about, I don't know, this idea of like looking at you as a barrier rather than an opportunity is very annoying to me. I'm annoyed by this. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It was, it, it was, it wasn't annoying to me. It was more like, Oh, well you could have just said that from the very beginning of the email <laughs> right. and then we wouldn't have to, to have all this back and forth, you know, but maybe he was deciding whether or not that was a stance. Yeah. I don't know. Or just playing, yeah, playing tough, hard to get. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I just, I guess what I'm 
what I'm saying is what you're saying, but like that, that there's, there's so, so hard for all of us. Right. So like we should be partnering, we should be working together. We should be not expecting someone to pay the other one, you know, like we should just be in it together. And then if the movie does get made, financing does come into place, then we all get, you know, a fee, you know, that's written into the budget. So like that should be the way it it works. And I feel like writers still hold on to this idea that like, they are going to get paid for their work. They wrote it, they'll get paid. And it's like, well, maybe you will. (laughs) No one's getting paid. (laughs) But no one else is getting paid. paid. So, so it's kind of unreasonable to think that you will get paid if no one else is getting paid. You know, write things that make your heart sing, you know, write things that are meaningful to you. And then you'll get value from the experience of it being made. Like that is, that is all I'm thinking about right now is like never have expectations being paid. Unfortunately, it's horrible. It's a horrible system we're in. <laughs> like I do want to hear more about like your process for working with writers and how you find writers and, you know, like this writer on Twitter, for instance, like, you know, like, will, will you ever read their script now or is it just done? This, oh, the writers that I met on Twitter. Yeah. I, I mean, I read like, parts of like six scripts. Oh, you've read parts of all the scripts? Yes, I think that's also what made me resentful. It's like, <laughs> dude, I like really never do this for anyone. <laughs> and, he had, and he had just watched a trailer of one of your movies. Yeah, and I was just like some person to him. And I just kept thinking, this is not how I want to have a collaboration at all. Yeah, like what's your expectation then? They would like watch, you know, like a whole movie or something or? I mean, I just maybe, maybe they've been fucked over so many times that they're not going to put a time investment in, but like asking someone to read any script is hours of work. My expectation was maybe read my bio. I don't know. Go to my website. Pretend like you know anything about me. That's what I want. I want right. just pretend. Just pretend. Yeah, I guess. I don't know what I expect. Like, it'd be nice if they watch my movie, if someone approached me for anything, but like, I'm not really expecting them to. I guess also at this stage, because it's not available. <laughs> anyway really you know so it's like it's not really easy for them but yeah i mean it's nice if they checked out some of the shorts or whatever but you know i mean i i get it like you, no one has a lot of time but i mean i think it, you, you can be like i guess what i'm trying to boil down to is like you can be inspired to want to work with somebody without having watched all their work like there could be things about like it could be a trailer it could be your website it could just be like something they saw of you something you said on twitter that they were inspired by like there could be all kinds of things that could make someone want to work with you so i'm not necessarily they're going to say like if they didn't watch like all my work like i'm not going to be like how dare you <laughs> you know but there needs to be a quality in common like i think it's like yeah. oh like natalie higdon her her script told me now it's like there's a david bowie character in it and it's like oh well i can look there the narrative writes itself and right. and josh and i from thin blue veins like i think we like very heartfelt content in the genre world so it's there's something there like i can argue a common bond but it's the weird like random reach out like it's great that you're doing what you're doing via linkedin and you're explaining the common bond that's all we need just like yeah. do a tiny bit of research <laughs> right exactly we'll see I'll, I'll let you know if it you know is fruitful at all but you know what is fruitful is to check out our patreon page www.patreon.com slash mmih podcast the way the show continues to live so if you like the words that we're saying every week and the the guests that we have on the show and the things that we do on this podcast uh, a dollar two dollars a month makes a huge difference so go over and check it out and then and you get to get, get some behind the scenes you get to hear our rambling things with uh, our producer Eric on our, our uh, you know weekly meetings every week is a new video posted to the patreon that's a exclusive 
behind the scenes look at the making of the show. So, uh, you know, that's one of the many, many bonuses you'll get if you're a, a Patreon patron. We also don't forget to check out Jambox.io. They're a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high quality cinematic cues. They also have customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. So check them out today. You also get a discount, 20% off of your subscription with the code MMIH. So go over there and subscribe and use MMIH today. But without any more further delay, here's our chat with Mikhail Chowdhury. Mikhail, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Give us the elevator pitch for Amy Victoria. And everyone, well, first of all, thank you guys for having me on. Really appreciate you for letting me join you. Amy Victoria is a short film, a queer deaf love story about two profoundly deaf women of color who are kept apart on their anniversary and they are forced to sort of face some of their own vulnerabilities or insecurities um, in order to reconcile at the end of it. How many days did you shoot? Two and a half. And what was the rough budget, if you can say? I can say it was uh, approximately $2,000. Wow. If you could fold in two questions into one, that is my preference here. So we want to know how you came up with the idea, but I also know that this short is tied to the myth of control, which is an episodic project. So if there's a way where you can kind of answer both, that would be great. Absolutely. So back when the lockdown happened in March 2020, then I had just, I'd been developing a feature film and I had funding for it and I just had an audience table read and it was all going great. And that happened the last Saturday before lockdown happened. So there, there was a group of about 30 people who would never forgive me for robbing them of their last Saturday night of freedom to listen to my second draft screenplay being performed by some wonderful actors. But nonetheless, it was a second draft version of my screenplay. So after that happened in a week of sitting around feeling forlorn about life and the world, then I decided um, we'd just go and start making something. So I sent an email out to a few people, including Sana Sony, who's been a guest on your show previously, which was titled Bonkers Idea, I think it was. And I was based in DC at the time. So I reached out to these people and I said, guys, what if we just try to make something during this time and do it remotely and find a way to shoot it? And to my surprise, everyone came back and said, yes, we're doing nothing at all. <laughs> can, we, can we please do it? So that developed into a web series or a short form series called The Myth of Control. Myth of Control was seven episodes, each episode 10 minutes long or under 10 minutes to be fair, somewhat shorter. And it was conceived, completed, shot, created entirely remotely during that lockdown period in 2020. We went from concept to locked scripts within about three weeks. So it was very quick. Everything had to be done virtually as we're going through. We, we found a way to shoot things. So out of that series, there was an episode called Amy Victoria, which was the third episode. That was one which featured these two deaf women. And one of the characters, Amy, is a kind of lead character through the series. But in that episode, it's quite a self-contained story of those two women. So we, when we came to marketing the series and looking how to develop it, we thought, well, if we can cut an episode as a short film, that'll actually help us to get more traction probably in terms of being able to pitch and sell it because festival circuits tend to prefer a short to a web series. Amy Victoria lent itself to that. And also it, it, was, it was one of the favorites amongst a lot of people that have watched the series. So we re-edited it as best we could to turn it into a self-contained story. And that's that's how it developed. In terms of the question of, of how I came up with the concept for it, the concept for the series was about six friends who were all experiencing the same day of their lives. And you see each episode focusing on a different character experiencing the same day. And they're all connected through this joint video call. 
that sort of culminates in a thing. And there are various stories in there, some of intrigue, some sort of romance, some of a bit more comedy, some are darker, some are lighter. The Amy Victoria story developed because I wanted to do a story that was just a love story, just a very pure kind of romantic, just nice love story, a romantic drama. And people, everyone asked me, why, why, was, why were the characters deaf? And the honest truth is that I didn't really decide. I didn't sit there and say, I'm going to make up a deaf character or a deaf story. It, it sounds pretentious, but they just kind of were. Like the character of Amy, who was created first, came out when I was thinking about the different characters and thinking about the different people and having to do this on my head, obviously very, very quickly on the fly. Then I just, it occurred to me that I really, you don't see deaf characters in situations where, unless they have to be deaf for a specific plot-based reason. And I didn't see any reason why that should be the case. So yeah. So she was deaf and then it, it made logical sense that Victoria would also be deaf. The fact that Victoria is also a woman, again, they just were. That one was really just, I didn't really put any thought into that at all. It just sort of happened and developed. And then having created the, the basic story to it, the concept of the, the arc and where it sort of started and ended, then we had the brilliant writer, Hannah Harmison, who came in and she works with deaf community. has a lot of deaf friends. She also knows American Sign Language. So she was able to bring in and write this really beautiful story to it, a great script and, and bring along those elements. So that's how... That's how it was conceived initially. That's how it was sort of developed. And how long did you spend working on the film from like the idea to its release? Let me see, we did, we had, I mean, we had a few, if you account for the gaps in between where we were, say, shooting other bits or we're moving equipment around, but it was a few months in total. That's all. So it wasn't, it wasn't very long. We didn't have a lot of time. And I just want to be very clear. We were all horribly naive because in 2020, going back to 2020, when we were all spraying bleach on our groceries in the, in our doorsteps and things, we all thought, I oh, things are going to be back to normal by October. So we just figured we've got to get this done quickly and really fast while everyone's still still free so we did and then and then a year later happened and then another year later happened <laughs> compared to all the other projects you've done how difficult was this one this is the single hardest project i've ever done unquestionably we when i say that we shot remotely created the reason the budget was so low is because we shot it on an iphone to be fair we shot it on my wife's iphone which is why we didn't have to pay for the camera and we my wife allowed us to clear her iphone completely Put the filmic, yeah, this is a wonderful woman. So I keep thanking it every, anytime I get interviewed or talked about this. She let us clear her iPhone. We put the Filmic Pro app on there, which is the, an app which kind of unlocks the camera settings on your phone effectively, allows you to turn it into a better video camera. It's, uh, it's the app that, you know, Soderbergh used for High Flying Bird and uh, the, the Duplass Brothers used for Tangerine. And then we sent that along with two pretty cheap softbox lights from Amazon, a very good microphone, I might add, because we wanted to get sound in there somewhere, and a couple of the tripods. We, we packed packaged it up and sent it to each actor in turn. They would put it in the trunk of, a, of an Uber or a Lyft without having to contact with the driver because the driver just popped the trunk. They sanitized it, put it in the back of the trunk. It would drive to the next person in LA, pop the trunk, they'd take it out, re-sanitize just to be safe, shoot with it, put it in the trunk, go on and so forth. And that, that's, how we did the, that's how we did the equipment. And we had to coordinate, obviously, the logistics of, of all of that, the timings of everyone doing it. I mean, we had to go back to how would we even shoot this thing because we didn't know how to shoot remotely. What we didn't want to do, and there's nothing wrong at all with shooting a film on Zoom, as many people have done very imaginatively and brilliantly, but we wanted to shoot 
something as if that didn't look like we had shot it remotely, as if we had just shot it in a normal way. So to do that, we had to have some kind of some level of camera work on it. We had to be able to have, you know, pans, tilts, movement, you had to do some handheld stuff, things like that. And so all of that had to be conceived. We got to work with a, a wonderful cinematographer that gave us a lot of his advice. He's an Oscar, Oscar nominated guy, and he gave us a ton of time to talk through what could we use. That's how we settled on the phone because we knew we were putting it in the hands of someone in the quarantine bubble of the actor who had never been on set in their lives. So people are comfortable with the phone. We put together our own PDF guides of how to set up the equipment, how to shoot. We gave all this guidance notes, things, a little video we did for everybody and set it around. And then, yeah, and then on the day, everyone had to join a video call. We had to, the director was directing, director Christy Farris. Christy Farris was her directorial debut, in fact, her first film. She's a very well-known actor. She's been in Scrubs, Goliath, in Monogamy, multiple shows over the years. Very recognizable. She'd never directed a film before. And so she had to direct over video to these actors who were deaf and she doesn't know American Sign Language. And so we used Google Meet at the time was the first of these apps that had a mechanism for live voice recognition closed captioning. So we would speak slowly and the captions would come up on the screen. The actors would read them and then they would understand what to do. And they, if they were comfortable speaking and using their voice, they would do that. And if not, they would type in the chat box back to us to do it. So that's how we shot our film. So it was without a doubt the most challenging, but it was also the most rewarding and probably the most fun because everybody, when, when you're doing something so completely insane as this, and, and it really, yeah, making any film is an act of lunacy, really. But this was the next level. Everybody had such good humor about it. Everyone was just so patient, so happy to be part of it and doing it. It was a brilliant atmosphere. So uh, definitely the hardest, but also uh, the most fulfilling. I have a couple of questions. First off, how did you find your, your deaf talent? How, what was that the process like? Yeah, that was the easiest part of the entire film. And it really is this big thing. When when I said the character's going to be deaf, I had a bunch of people say to me, okay, but how are you going to... And I, and I said, we're going to cast deaf actors. There's no way we're not doing that deaf actors. Everybody said, but how are you going to find them? Well, what if you can't? And I was just like, we, we will. I'm just confident we will. And we had two characters who were both deaf women of color. We reached out to a talent agent who is very well known for representing disabled performers. They had a fantastic roster of deaf actresses. We went through and we made offers to Natasha O and Stephanie Nogueras, and they both very kindly accepted it. And bear in mind, we're approaching them saying, hey, can we pay you to, to shoot yourselves on an iPhone in your own home using your own wardrobe? And also someone who you're living with is going to have to operate the camera. And they, and they both said yes. And both of them, uh, just to be clear to everyone, Natasha and Stephanie are both very well-established, accomplished actors. Natasha has been here on uh, Netflix Politician. She's been in Marvel, the Marvel Universe. She's in the game uh, Spider-Man, Mars Morales. Stephanie Nagueras is, is crushing it right now. She, not only she's been on things like Grimm and The Good Fight, she's now one of the leads on Killing It, which is a new show from the guys behind Brooklyn Nine-Nine. These are, these are people who are very seasoned and, and very talented and experienced. It, it was really easy to get that talent. When people ever go and say, yeah, we couldn't, or it's too hard to find, say, talent who are, I don't know, whatever it is, whether it's disabled or whether it's a particular minority backgrounds or something, it, it's not true. You're just, you're not looking hard enough. 
to be quite honest with you. So that was the easiest piece of the entire thing. Going back to the funding piece, though, when you were ready to go, were you ready to go for a completely different film? And did you convince your investors to put money into this? Or was this entirely put together through the like a crowdsource budget amongst all of the crew? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. No, I didn't resource the funding because that funding was very for a very different kind of project. That was very much for a feature film. So we didn't want to repurpose it for that. We actually did have, I'll be honest, if we had waited about three to four months, we actually had a funding offer from a smaller a smaller body who they are one of the platforms that arose to try and do short form content uh, for a time. So they had an offer, it would have been great, but we've had to wait several months to go and get that. In retrospect, I think we definitely made the right decision because had we waited, we would have had a bit more money to work with. But at the same time, we would have lost the momentum, that energy that, that we had. And really to pull off something as, as crazy as this, we, we just needed that kind of energy momentum to it. So yeah, we basically funded amongst a number of the producers and that's how we put it together. But I, it was a lot of people on this, obviously for that budget, there were people involved who didn't take their day rate, who, who did things very, very generously for us. And part of it was nobody was working at the time because everything was so shut down. But nonetheless, it was very generous of them to do so because not everybody was willing to do that. I think it was a really lucky stroke for us that we just found some brilliantly talented people that were willing to not only just come in and do it, but really commit themselves to this. So what happened to the money for the other feature? <laughs> Did that just <laughs> disappear completely? Like the deal's done? Or were you, are you still have that kind of line open to make the movie later? Like talk, talk to us about like what happened and why it happened. Yeah, absolutely. So so that money was, and, and yes, the line is still open. In fact, I had a call today with the investor. In fact, we've been talking a lot. He's, he's a very nice guy. He's a good bloke. We met him through other channels. He's still very interested. We were talking about the projects developing and he said to me, his exact words were, so what are we doing with that script that I love? So yes, that is very much still there on the cards. I'm hoping to make that film in the next two years and to get back onto that. So that's very much there. I mean, what happened with that though, as you as you as you very sensibly ask, is we had so he was investing development funding for it, and he was also on board to produce and bring in extra fun investors. And we had two events lined up to to have meetings with those investors to also include sharing samples of things with them to do so. That all obviously went out the window when COVID struck. Now, the way I shoot films is I will not shoot a frame or not spend a dime until I've got all the money I need to make the entire film from start to finish, including completion. There's nothing wrong with doing it differently. I know plenty of indie producers that do it differently. They will get enough money to get the ball rolling and they'll write the script and they'll get the money in to shoot it. Then they'll crowdsource you know, the, the editing. But that's not how I work. So with that, the money went back because I said, we're not ready to do it. So I handed it back off because I wasn't prepared to sit on it just for a period of time and then be in an awkward situation. I'm just thinking about it's March 2020 and you're like, fuck it, let's make a movie, which is great. But I think the presumption is you didn't know how long, none of us knew how long this was going to be. So now looking back on it, you're pitching pandemic created content. So I'm just, I'm, I want to get under the hood of like, did you do it to be a commercial product? And I understand you shot it to not be a Zoom movie, but it still has the limitations of something that possibly was made under this like very exciting duress. So I'm just curious how that translates to pitching right now and the response to the film. Like are pitch, people seeing it as pandemic content? Are you even, are you trying to be really quiet about that? What are you going to do with it? When, what's 
the ideal. Yeah, re- really good point. So when we created it, we made it pandemic adjacent. The only time there's a reference to anything like a pandemic are a couple of very throwaway references, which are purely because we needed a reason why the characters never meet in the same space at the same time. That's the only reason why. We very specifically wanted to make sure this was not about the pandemic or about that. It's about these characters who happen to be going through a really crap time at, the, at that period of time. So that was that was the goal. And to a large extent, we we managed to achieve that. There's, you, know, you see a little references to things here and there, but it's not about it. And in terms of pitching it subsequently, I think now that was definitely the right call to make. And then to get it, you know, it's interesting you say it because there's no filmmaking, as you guys know, is all about choices. There's not necessarily a right or wrong. You just, you have to make a call at the time and you hope that in hindsight, you'll look back and go, yes, that was the right one to make. There were people that we were working with who were lobbying us to try and say, well, no, we should make it really about the pandemic. It should be really all about this and stuff. And we, we went the other way and I think it was the right decision. So in terms of pitching this, it's actually gone very well. The We're looking at developing Amy Victoria as a feature at the moment. I'm actually working, starting work on the script at the moment, along with Hannah, one of the original writers, uh, the original writer, sorry, and uh, another writer. And we're hoping to bring on, or we will be bringing on, in fact, a deaf writer. And I'm already working with a deaf producer over in the States as well around it. So that that's working. It's very, I mean, it's very different in the sense that they do share the same space. It's not set in the pandemic at all. It's very much, you know, as if it never happened in, in the universe that we're creating for that. So when you're making the show, like, like I, I guess I, I haven't seen it, so maybe this is a silly question, but does it look like it's a Zoom conversation or like what are the shots and the angles in the movie? And like, was the iPhone, was the purpose of it to like have a better quality camera that you could control and like get actually like better footage, but then just have it kind of replicate a Zoom angle? Or was it more like that you were giving them a shot list to like knock out like while they were shooting their segments like how like can you just talk through like what the purpose of the iphone was and how it worked absolutely the film does not at all look like a zoom because it's not set as a zoom so you imagine you're just watching a film where you've got angles you've got wide you've got close up you've got pan i mean the film the film starts with a a panning shot that literally swings around from you know a a close-up of a clock to one of the characters lying on a bed and goes in there you have pov shots you have over the shoulder, all of that. The the end of the film is a balcony scene where you have one of them outside looking up at the other and they're signing to each other from one balcony down to the roof and then there's a later scene where they swap around, the other one has approached them is is signing up to the window. So it very much is is shot exactly like a normal film. There's no reference to to Zoom or anything in it whatsoever, which was the goal that we had. And and one of the great compliments we had actually was that someone in post-production who didn't know what we shot it on, they actually asked us, they, they told us later they had a assumed it was shot on a DSLR because they, they they were so surprised that we shot it on a phone. So we felt that like we, we did a really good job. We managed to make it look really good. We, we were guiding everything from, from the setups, the shot list to the ISO to, to everything all remotely. Let's take a step back because I think we, we weren't even planning on talking about the myth control to this extent. I think we were just like, let's let's talk to Mikhail. Let's just learn about him. And, you know, looking at your CV, you have this feature you made around 2002 and then you have like hmm. a lot of shorts. And then I think you're you're building up to more features. I'm just curious, like, was that by design? We often talk about the value of short form and whether it really grows a career or whether it's a distraction or we'd just love to have a more frank discussion about going from features to shorts. Absolutely. Yes. I'll be completely frank. I wasn't planning on making any shorts 
in the last couple of years. Purely the pandemic is what pushed that. I started off actually in music when I was a kid. And then I, I went and did a law degree because uh, I'm, my background is I, I'm mixed race. So I'm Bangladeshi, Mexican and British. And I was born in Bangladesh and I was a migrant over to the UK, but I grew up effectively a second generation immigrant. As any good second generation immigrant, I was very clearly told that there were four professions that were acceptable <laughs> for you to get into. And, and the arts and filmmaking were definitely not, definitely not one of them. So I went while I was doing my law degree, I, I sort of fell in with the theatre crowd. I started off doing that sort of acting, doing improv and then doing some actual proper acting and then directing plays and then writing. And the first play that I wrote, first full play that I wrote, we premiered it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival at the time. It got some accolades in the press. So I decided to shoot it as a feature. And I had no clue whatsoever what I was doing. And as you said, it was 2002. And we didn't, we didn't have the internet in the capacity that you do now. So you couldn't YouTube everything. You couldn't Google all this stuff. I, I had basically no, no idea what I was doing. I managed to blag 500 quid, which is about maybe 800 bucks from the local council. Then I borrowed the mate's flat and cast a bunch of students, some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't know, but they, they seemed to be able to do the roles well. And it was a big ensemble sort of film with lots of different characters and, and stuff based on the play. Uh, and long story short, it, it, I don't know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily argue it was particularly good, but it was good enough to get into a couple of film festivals or a film festival in the States. So I got a screening in LA, screening in New York, and I made some contacts there. But, but making that film, when you have no idea, it's one of the best things to do is to just make stuff when you have no clue what you're doing. Because then you, you have no idea that you're getting it wrong. And as long as there's no one around to tell you you're doing it wrong, then it doesn't really matter because you'll just keep going and you'll get it done. So I, we shot this thing and we had, we had crazy, crazy stuff like we're lighting it with lamps because we couldn't afford proper lights. And someone had heard that if you have like parchment paper and tape that over the top of the lamp, it helps to diffuse the light. So you've got all these hungover students waiting for their scene, holding up lamps with like parchment paper. No idea if it made any difference for the shot. And when I edited it, again, we didn't have any money. So, and there's no film school in Dundee where I went to university. So my mate was a, a, an animation student at the art college and he gave me the code to get into the editing suites in the basement. And I, I was sneaked down at like 5 a.m. when they opened the doors, work until nine, then leave during classes and come back at like five and work till 10 or 11 or whatever time they closed uh, and sneak out again. And tempted, I, we considered actually staying overnight, you know, hiding while security came and then shooting it. But then we realized there'd be no access to the toilet while we were there. So we <laughs> felt it wouldn't be as romantic a gesture as, as it sounded. So that's, that's how I made my first film and I made a feature and people say, why did you make a feature? It's because I didn't, I didn't know any other thing and, and I'm glad I did because it was, it was a great experience. So when it got to, and then over the years in between then, I did a lot more theatre. So I was back in London, I was doing kind of theatre stuff and I had a couple of plays on uh, and that kind of thing while I was also doing my law degree, my, sorry, my law career at the same time. So when I, I got to the States, I started getting back into film properly. I wasn't planning to do a short, I was going to go and do a feature. I, I'd already made a film that seemed to be sufficient for people to feel comfortable to invest in me and feel confident that I could do something. So that that was the that was the goal. But you know, life happened, pandemic got in the way. And, and the funny thing is that when you slight off topic, but you know, people say to me about how do you like but people talk about producing and and yeah, I, I'm predominantly a writer-director, but I ended up producing a bunch of stuff recently because you, if you just do it and people see that you do it, then they'll just keep hiring you to do it, essentially. So, you know, the best thing you can do in any anything you want to do in life is just find the thing you're hoping to do and just, just start doing it. If you start doing it, it's astonishing how quickly people will assume you have some level of, of competence at it. And I, I don't claim to have a clue what I'm doing. I just know I've made 
so many mistakes over the years that, that I, I must know something here and there, but I really just uh, fumble the way through. So just to, to clarify something that you said, you said you had a, a law career for a while and then so you left that career and now you're just a full-time filmmaker or like what what kind of happened with that? No, I'm still an attorney at the moment. Oh, so wow. uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm still a full-time attorney, which uh, I, I'm very lucky. I really enjoy, I really enjoy being a lawyer. It's a really fun job and I get to work with great people. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard, but I also love filmmaking. Um, so at the time being, I've been able to balance the two pretty well. It means, it means your evenings, your weekends, your vacation all gets spent on obviously your passion stuff as opposed to perhaps just sitting around relaxing, but, uh, but that's fine for me. So I, I've been very lucky to, to balance the two so far and, and just make them work. Does that help with funding projects? I mean, you've already, in the very short span of time we talked to you, you've talked about turning away funding, having funding for a feature before the pandemic happened. And then like, it just seems like you have access to people with money. And I'm curious if part of that is running in networks that are not film in addition to being in the film world. So yeah, a, re- a really good question. And it's always an age old question. Of how do you get money? And, and I don't want to pretend that I've, I've cracked the nut. I don't want to pretend that I, I know exactly what I'm doing or how to do it. I have had some success in that regard. I, I don't claim to have had any more than that. It has not come from my legal career. I, interestingly enough, I keep the two quite separate. So I don't tend to bleed across. Now, there are, there are things about being an attorney that help you as in the creative world. Apart from the else, there's a discipline of being an attorney that really helps in the creative world. And I think that helps people feel confident to invest in you because they they take an attitude that says, well, this person's probably a fairly safe pair of hands. You know, as a, anyone who's out there trying to get money, the worst thing you can possibly do is to be a bit wishy-washy, to be late to meetings, to miss deadlines, to not summarize stuff in a professional manner. You have to convince the person you're talking to that you're going to be a really safe pair of hands for the project, whatever whatever that happens to be. So I think for me, that comes fairly naturally because your role as an attorney is to give your clients confidence in your knowledge and your capability. Uh, and I approach things with that kind of diligence to it. Uh, one thing in America, which is really interesting to me, is that you, know, you see a lot of attorneys go into creative arts. There are so many lawyers who then end up their writers or their showrunners or their directors or film producers. It's, it's a lot of it. And that doesn't hurt. But I, you know, in the UK, I think there's a slightly older mentality that says, well, if you're in the arts, darling, you should be in the arts. You should be, there should be nothing else in your mind. And you must never have studied a thing other than that. Whereas in the States, I was talking to someone and they, I got told off because I didn't lead with the fact I was an attorney <laughs> when I was talking to them about a project. And they said to me, said to me, you should start with that. I even had a meeting with someone in LA. It was really funny. I just met them randomly, had a coffee. It was a really, ni- really nice person, great meeting. At the end of it, they said, I'm going to connect you with these people. I think you should talk to those. And I said, well, do you want to see some samples of my work though to know if I'm any, <laughs> I've been, ta- been talking a good game, but it could all be BS. And, uh, and they just said to me, uh, Look, you pass a New York bar. I'm pretty sure you can handle a meeting with a couple of my friends. And, and so maybe my work is terrible. Maybe it's awful, but it just goes to show if you can project and uh, not confidence in yourself, but if you can win the confidence of whoever you're speaking to, that's the harder part part of it. That doesn't mean to say you can't ruin it at the next step. It doesn't mean they can't read your script and hate it. It doesn't mean they can't think your work is rubbish or you're terrible, but you're never going to get a chance for anyone to even look at what you're doing if you can't present yourself in a way that says, look, you, you can trust me. I will I will get you something good at the end of this. So let's, let's talk about some of your other projects. So you have this other film, The Multi, that you produced. Can you talk about how that came about and like, you know, did you have to fundraise for that and bring it all together? Were you hired on? Like, what, what was the the relationship there? Yes, I was hired on. Natasha Ophelia, who was the actor, one of the actors in Amy Victoria, 
She is a deaf woman and she came up with a concept. She created this whole project. She came up with a script and a concept and she obtained some grant funding for this film. And then she asked me if I'd be interested in coming on board. And I originally was coming on board as an EP, actually. It's more of an executive producer kind of role to, to provide some oversight to things rather than sort of managing it all. And there was somebody else was producing it, somebody else who I knew very well and, and is a very talented producer themselves. That producer had to step away for for various reasons, nothing ill will. It was for personal factors that they had at the time. So they they stepped away. I sort of then ended up kind of filling the gap to a degree and ended up you know, producing really as, as one of the producers on it. So that's what that was. But that was with the majority deaf cast and crew as well. So we also had behind the camera, majority deaf team in that, which was a fantastic experience. It was brilliant to work with. They were, they were tremendous. And again, you, you know, you, we had... We had these challenges. We managed to squeeze it in between two of the LA County lockdowns. So that was <laughs> early, early 2021. I know it was just like, well, we were, again, we were supposed to shoot it earlier. And then like kind of things got tightened and then it got reopened just enough. And we were like, run, dive now. Can everyone, can everyone do it? Everyone can do it. Like, great. Let's just, <laughs> everyone's got a free, a free weekend, shoot it. So we shot it in two days, phenomenal crew on set. And due to the lockdown, then a bunch of us weren't there. You know, the, the director, myself, script supervisor, the ASL interpreters, they were all, we were all remote. So we were all, we had this sort of big TV set up in the, on the set with the Zoom running with all of us on it. The, the interpreters were interpreting tirelessly throughout the entire shoot to, to keep everything going. And, and again, it was a lot of communication, a lot of careful thing, but yeah, when everyone believes in what they're doing and everyone's having a good time doing it, it it's amazing how just, you just, it, the, the obstacles just fall away. Well, let's talk about accolades. So that went to Slamdance. And then you're also an Emmy nominee for something else. So tell us how that happened. I am. So I'm an Emmy nominee. Well, first of all, yes. So the multi went to Slamdance. You're absolutely right, which was a tremendous privilege to go to. And that's just such a brilliant festival. So that was great. The Emmy was actually for unscripted. So I, the reason I got back into, into film as opposed to theater, which I'd been doing more of, was that when I moved to DC with my, my legal work, I became friends with a guy called Paul Water. Paul Wharton is the most fabulous individual you will ever meet. He's this glorious, gorgeous, tall, long-haired, fabulous sort of ball of wonderfulness. And, and he's brilliant. We became friends just randomly. He's a sweet, sweet guy. He's been on reality TV. He's been in front of the camera, behind the camera as a producer on unscripted shows and things. Done tons of stuff over the years. He, he still appears on TV a lot now. And he's worked with MTV, with VH1, with Fox 5, with all sorts of different networks. So when we both realized that we, we both actually work in this kind of area, this space together, we started off developing a narrative show, which we're still, we're actually pitching it at the moment. So we've got, and we're hoping, in fact, we've got a few people that are very interested in it. So hopefully that'll get developed actually as a, as a scripted series in the next couple of years. But from that, he was doing a holiday special with Patty LaBelle. He was kind enough to ask me if I would come on and produce it with him. So I did. So I joined as a producer and we did that and we got nominated for an Emmy for it in the end, which was which is just extraordinary as a thing to do. So it was tremendous fun. And he's, he's always a pleasure. He was a producer on Amy Victoria, in fact. We, we worked together ever since. What did you think about producing a film remotely like that, where you're not on set and like, you know, watching the director direct remotely in that way? And like, do you feel like that is something you would do again or something that you would like recommend for future projects? Or do you feel like that's only something 
that we should be doing if there are absolutely zero other options to get you know the creatives to set to actually direct and produce the project? Absolutely. I, the, first, the best way to shoot a film is always going to be on set physically. I mean, just without question, you can move faster. The communication's better. You, you're going to have a, the, There's no question that's the case. In these kind of circumstances, it was. I'm glad we were able to create because we couldn't have done using the traditional model. It simply wasn't possible. Incorporating elements of that work very well. So I don't think everybody has to be on set necessarily. It's great if everybody can be because you also build that sort of that, that community spirit and that familial thing around it. But even if they're not, you'll still build that to a degree and you don't need to have everybody physically on set. So if your budget's too too tight to have people flying in or to have accommodation for stuff or things like this, or I mean, we're, still, we're still at the time of the pandemic where you're having to do testing. There are still a lot of rules around things. COVID hasn't gone away. It's, it's, it's eased, but it hasn't disappeared. So in those cases, I would, I would say to people, you don't need everybody on set at the time. If you can limit it, if you need to limit your numbers, you can do that. You need to be a bit smart about how you do it. You need to make sure you've got really good Wi-Fi connection at both ends and you have stuff set up, but you can absolutely have certain key roles. I mean, script supervisor is one of the most important roles, in my opinion, on a film set. It gets totally underrated, never gets the credit that it deserves, but they don't have to be physically on set to do their job. They can actually do it very effectively remotely if you have everything geared up in that way. You know, And similarly, there are other roles like that. The, the place where I think the remote thing really, really should be utilized more is post-production and pre-production. We do not need to have the level of physical meetings that, that go on right now. You don't need to have everyone physically in a small office the whole way through pre-production. And in post-production, you absolutely do not need to have the director sat there in the room for eight hours, you know, sweating over the shoulder of the poor editor. Uh, doing stuff, you just—it's just not necessary to do it. You—you you can find ways to do it. It's more efficient. It's better to do it in that way. I—I want to disagree. <laughs> Wait, Ulrich, are you going to agree? You're going to agree. I'm going to agree because I, I, I guess it's a little different. So I work at a, at a company where I, I post produce these like long form corporate videos, and we do everything remotely. And like that's my—I'm I'm a post producer, so my whole job is to manage the team and make sure that like everything is happening properly. And no one's in person ever. It's all remote, and it works. Fuck great but i don't i don't know how i would like if i had to do that with my own movie i don't know if i would agree but 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 having said that like i i basically did like i i had color was remote sound was remote on my feature like we did everything remote and you know i wish i wish i could have been in the room for the color session and for the sound session i think that would have been great but you know the movie's great i love it so i don't don't know but let's talk i want to hear your side of it well just i had a session with my composer this morning we're about to lock music and i I just really wanted to be in a room being like, what if you tried this? Like so badly. But that's a minor concession. And like, I completely safety is first. Safety is most important. But I think there are moments where you can really explore in person. And that momentum is lost when you're in that remote world where you don't want to ask someone to listen to something through Zoom audio or look at it through their, you know, MacBook Air monitor. And you, it, I think they're there's an awkwardness there. That's all. No, I mean, uh, in person is always going to be the most effective way to make anything, <laughs> uh, to do anything, you know, in not just in filmmaking, but in the corporate world, in the personal world, nothing is ever going to be that for physical interaction. I think for when your budget is tight, when your time is limited, when you're trying to juggle these things, and particularly in post-production where, you know, post-production, you're, you're paying the editor, you're paying the colorist, you're, you're paying the composer. The time you're spending physically in the room with them is our blocks 
of cash that you're you're having to spend on that. Whereas if you can do it virtually, they can probably get a lot more done for your money in that time. And then you look at it. So, you know, when you know a lot of my editing through this entire process, because I so we did the series, we did the film. I then got hired to produce a set of three short films by uh, Samir Gardezi of Break the Room. And Samir Samir is a wonderful guy. He's just actually just wrote and got nominated for an NAACP Image Award for writing Hot Mess Holiday, which is pretty much the first kind of brown holiday movie, or one of the very few brown holiday movies out there. It's on Comedy Central. He's a really sweet guy. And he, yeah, he brought me in to do it because they had money to shoot these three films, but they needed them to be done and out by the election in November 2020. And so they had a tiny window to do it. And he had seen what we did with the myth of control. And he was like, look, could you do that for this? So we did. And again, with that, you know, we had the same process. We're going through the editing. So I've now been able to do remote post-production process on the equivalent of about, about 12 maybe 13 short films in equivalent on it. And while it would be wonderful to be in the same room each time, in terms of time, the ability for them to go through, send it over for the director and the producer to make detailed notes in, a, in an organized and structured way for them to implement that and come back and forth. It, it just, I think it worked very well. But I, I'm not going to take away from you, Liz. Yeah, absolutely right. If you can, if you can be there physically there and have, you know, if you've got the budget and you've got the time to go and have all of that extra camaraderie and also the time where you're sitting there and then the two of you are just kind of chatting randomly and then brilliant ideas spark out of nowhere. All that stuff is glorious. It's wonderful to do. It is just uh, when you're, when you can watch your bundles of cash burning in the corner <laughs> as you're doing it. I get that. And also, I it struck me listening to you that there really is a theme of this specific interview or this episode, so to speak. It, there, It's like making things with restrictions. Like I think the first feature, the restriction was actually benefit, was ignorance, not knowing exactly. And then you have the COVID movies, you have this, the ASL short. I mean, there are restrictions to communication. There are barriers to transportation. This is going to, I hope I, I'm not giving you like a massive question to answer. It's either like, what is the takeaway from all those restrictions? Or like, what is the number one thing you're going to protect as soon as you're let loose to make something exactly the way you want with no restrictions? <laughs> Absolutely. So on the question of restrictions, everyone's got a restriction. Like the guys who made uh, the Russo brothers who made Avengers Endgame had a budget of something like $320 million. I all, I, I, maybe not, but I would all but guarantee that they would have loved to have had another $5 million to do certain things. I almost guarantee there were bits they're like, oh, if we could have only just done that. You will never have enough of, of anything realistically as a filmmaker because you're the bigger you your, your options are, the bigger your creative vision gets. That's what you get. So restrictions are, are not a bad thing. They're, I think they're a friend. They're, if, you take, if you take them and don't worry about what you can't do, but simply focus on what you can do and what you've got available to hand. And as long as you just say, well, it's not about I want to do this, but I can't do it just going to be, well, what can I do with what I've got? And then you'll get it made. And once you've got it made, it's always when we were doing, uh, go too much off tangent on it, but coming back to this point of restrictions, we were, the majority of films never get made. Majority of films where there's an idea or a script or even pre-production or even sometimes in production. And I know films, I mean, you guys will know this as well, the number of filmmakers that actually make their film. And then the post-production never quite seems to get finished or it takes two years or so. It's tragic to, to watch and doing that. So I always say to people, if you actually make it and finish the film, yeah, the odds of that film never getting made are much greater than you making it and it being shit. 
If you make it, it's probably going to be good. So, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about, but we couldn't get that shot or, or I couldn't do this or something. You know, when I watch all my films back, which I do every night, obviously, while I'm sitting in a smoking <laughs> jacket with a cigar. No, I, which I, which I literally never do unless you're at a festival and they're on a screen. And when I do, I'm cringing the whole way through. Not because I'm like, oh, why didn't we do that? I'm like, because I remember all the stuff we couldn't, we just didn't, we, uh, we couldn't shoot that. I know we couldn't have had that. It would have been better if I had that. I, that's how I feel about all my films, which most filmmakers do. That doesn't matter when you're shooting it. You have to just be, what have we got? And what can I do? And get it made. If you get it made, it's going to be good. Very rarely do people make a film where they really put their, their heart and they paid attention to it. It's, it's just it's just terrible. So I think that's the first thing. And in terms of what will I not let go of when I, on the day that I, I get the big bucket of money and I can do whatever I want and go crazy. The main thing I won't do is lose sight of post-production and the importance of that and also lose sight of the marketing and the end goal behind it. Well, I make films and I make plays and I make projects for an audience to enjoy. Because when I go to see anything or I read something, I want to enjoy it as an audience member. I'm not making it for me. I'm making it for somebody else to see it. I, I never want to be too self-indulgent with what I'm doing in that. I want to make sure it's it doesn't have to be spoon-fed to people, but that it's enjoyable for them to watch. So I never want to lose sight of that. Never going to lose sight of the fact that you know, as you're making it, you need to think about how you're going to market it. So what what is it going to be marketed for? Who's going to be marketed to? That that kind of target. What are you going to do for it at the end? And the post-production is really so critical. It just doesn't get the credit that it deserves most of the time. And so much of a movie. Yeah, the, the old phrase that you make three films: the one you write, the one you shoot, and the one you edit. But the one you edit is the last one that you make. So so yeah, really getting together with the post-production early, making sure I've got them on board, making sure that they are comfortable with what we're doing, that they're engaged and we can work with them in that way is going to be, I think, a key thing I'll try not to lose. Or maybe I'll go mad. Maybe I'll just go crazy and I'll basically blow. <laughs> I'll go like, you know, kind of an old school, like Days of Thunder, the way they just like <laughs> blew all their money, rolled around, a Scrooge McDuck it, just <laughs> pile it into a room and dive into it, something like that. Maybe I'll just do that. It'll be one, one film, the only film I ever make in my career, but... You know, it'll be glorious. <laughs> so I know we're we're short on time, but I gotta I gotta ask about good girls get fed because I'm actually one of your your crowdfunding supporters. Oh my god, that's amazing! I'm friends with Kelly Ludenis. She's amazing actor and now director. And so when I heard that she was making her first movie, I was like, I have to support her. So I'm just curious, like, how did you get involved with the project? Like, you know, what were your intentions with the movie? I just want to hear a little bit about the short film. Oh, I had no idea. Already. We should have just been talking about that the whole time. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Kelly Lou Dennis is absolutely amazing. She is one of the most brilliant people I, I've ever met. And uh, and the best thing about her is she does not realize that she is one of the most brilliant people you're ever going to meet, <laughs> which is fantastic because otherwise she'd probably be you know unworkable. With I was in a, I was in a clubhouse room. Uh, should, for anyone doesn't know, the clubhouse app is like a social media app, but everything is audio. So you have these audio rooms where you can sit there and just chat and things. And, and during the pandemic, it, it was a great source of things when you couldn't meet people. So I, I met a lot of cool people. I was in a clubhouse room and I was talk. I think I went up to speak and I was extolling, I believe I was extolling the virtue that my biggest piece of advice to everyone was to don't be a wanker because that it's a small industry and the best thing you can do is just try not to be a wanker in all situations. And then you'll probably be all right. But I and Kelly obviously went and thought this guy seems like a moron but let, let's just talk to him anyway so she reached out to me and we had a Zoom call and got very well she sent me the script for Good Girls Get Fed which I just blew my mind I loved it and I, I was like Kelly this, is not, this isn't a short film this isn't even just a feature this is a franchise this is a brilliant brilliant script uh, it's 
very, very well written. So she's a great actress, very talented, but she's also a fantastic writer. And she very, very kindly, and some might say foolishly, invited me to come on as a producer for the project. So, so I did. And we had part of the money from other sources, and then we crowdfunded, which is the first Seed and Spark campaign that I'd ever been part of. Part of. It went incredibly well. We exceeded the, the target that we had, in large part due to Kelly's very, very impressive sort of work building it. Um, also, the whole team behind it. We've got a fantastic team. The film itself is female-led, so it's a majority female crew, majority female cast. I'm the only guy in the entire, like, in the main producing team, definitely. Uh, and they, yeah, we just wrapped about two, uh, I will lie, about three or four weeks ago uh, over in LA. Uh, and Ulrich, thank you for, for donating and, and contributing to it. Really appreciate that. It's been it's been a great experience. Of course. My pleasure. Gotta, gotta you know, put my, my money where my mouth is because, you know, I got lots of support on my seed and spark campaign. So, when someone who I respect and like, you know, who I think is just a really, you know, talented person is doing something, I always try to put them, put, you know, help out when I can. Plus, I mean, the, the imagery got me right away. And then like, you know, Kelly wrote me personally to like, you know, let me know about the crowdfunding campaigns. She just did everything perfectly. She, she, she was amazing. She did a fantastic job. She is fantastic. I have said to Kelly that I, um, uh, this is probably the, the, the least amount of work. I, I've never felt more, frankly, pointless on a project than I did <laughs> on this film because everything that I'd be like, we need to do this. She's already, yeah, sure, of course, we've we'll done it already. So, brilliant. <laughs> We are running a little late, so I was thinking, with everyone's permission, we turn this into a rapid-fire final six questions. Let's do it. Go for it. First question. What's the first film you made, and how do you feel about it now? The Party. I'm pleased that I made it. I don't ever want to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Just, just get it made. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? <laughs> Quotes. I've spotted a typo on page three. I know it's only your first draft, but maybe you should fix that. <laughs> Anybody ever, 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 ever goes and does that to you, never go back to the provider. I've done that to again. so many people. <laughs> I am the worst. I've done that to like uh, everyone. I'm, I'm apologizing for my actions, but yes, go on. <laughs> Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Uh, yeah, to make bigger and better movies, but predominantly to bring in underrepresented voices to promote diversity within the work that I do, but in a way that is still commercial accessible. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? Don't worry about the outcome. And last question, is making movies hard? Good God, yes. It's really, really hard. I, I, I love it. If you've had people that said it isn't, then wonderful. I'm so pleased for them, honestly. But it's really, it's just hard for me. Like, like four people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not I, I'm glad it's not just no Mikhail you suck <laughs> everyone else finds it really easy <laughs> yeah and Liz I apologize I'm sure you I'm no. sure your advice is very no, helpful no it's bad I give bad, bad that's why I I'll, I tell people I don't want to read their script because I will just give them feedback that is unhelpful like there's a typo on page four I will because in lieu of anything else to say I'll be like uh, I know how to spell things that's all I can provide <laughs> please sell your wares tell people how they could support you best is it twitter is it email is it renting your work tell, tell them yeah so uh you can you can see me on instagram my handle is at midnight caller underscore 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 it's a random it's my old music handle and i haven't worked out how to change it on instagram because I'm, I'm a dinosaur uh, i'm on twitter as well at mikhail chowdhury 
you can reach me on there, see all the projects on there. Um, in terms of supporting me, the stuff isn't out there at the moment because we're still on festival circuits and also we're still selling it. We haven't made it publicly available. But if you follow me on Instagram and there are festival events going, please do follow those to, to see that. And anybody that wants to collaborate, I, I always just love talking to other people that are interested in doing stuff and meeting, happy to work on other things. So feel free to reach out. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Mikhail? So little, so little do I remember. It was months ago. It was four months ago. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Or three. Three months ago. That is like an eternity in post-2020. That's like <laughs> a long, long time. I do remember he was sweet, kind, charming. I remember there was like like a sarcastic back and forth between us. And then he, I don't know, I haven't listened to the show for a while, but like I think he like poked fun at we asked him like what's the worst what's the worst worst advice you've ever gotten and i remember there's like a nice little exchange between us at that moment and he became he just became very clear that he's a very sweet man and that is literally all i remember about the conversation was like a nice little back and forth on that one question i I remember going into this being like okay this guy is like a a writer and a producer but mainly like i kind of thought of him more as like a producer guest and that he was coming in to talk about like how he picks projects to produce and then there was like a whole story about like him writing his first feature and like getting gearing up to make his first movie and then it falling apart you know and like all this money that he had like lined up you know to to make the movie and then all kind of going away and then you know focusing on this other stuff like as a producer as a writer and that like he gets a lot of joy out of like you know collaborating on projects with people and like you know being this kind of person who is just making things like on the side of their day job and like how he gets so much fulfillment that's right he's a lawyer he was a lawyer that's right now it's all coming back yeah and like it's like he's he just does this for because he loves it and it's fun for him and he just he seemed to get so much pleasure from the work he was doing in filmmaking and i thought that that really struck a chord with me that he was just really enjoying all the things that we do as filmmakers and that he really liked to support other filmmakers and other projects and that like that was why he produced was because he wanted to help other people make their things i also remember that he he was a producer on this short film that i was a backer of good girls get fed kelly lou dennis is the uh the writer director and star of that short film and she's just an amazing person you know was a bay area actor moved to los angeles a few years ago but yeah really cool person so like having knowing that you know he worked with kelly i was like oh my god like (laughs) such a cool such a cool connection there and like you know it was nice to i wish we had time to talk more about that project because like that one sounds like a really fun one but yeah no i just remember it was a great conversation and i i I really had a lot of i mean i have fun talking to all our guests but i just remember walking away from that conversation just like with a smile on my face just being like that was really fun well we have to thank uh sana sony formerly of 1091 currently i don't know if i could say what her current employment is it's a it's an exciting move but she was a former guest of the show and she recommended mikhail so mikhail Nice. Well, in additional news, we are here to talk about a new segment. We have an article about digital creators being hesitant to break into Hollywood, and it's written by J. Clara Chan of The Hollywood Reporter. So the content of the article is that it talks a little bit about the creative control online creators lose when they start entering the traditional studio executive noting content to death system, as I like to call it, but also the double-edged sword of many creators going into online content in order to break into the established media landscape. Pretty interesting article, thanks to the curation of our producer, Eric. Eric, what do you think? 
Yeah, I kind of think this is a big problem that uh, people want to go into Hollywood thinking that they should have creative control as a as a first time filmmaker or like, you know, going from a background to like, yes, I am so great. I should be able to do whatever I want and no one should ever tell me anything and I should never take any notes from anyone because I am a god boy or a god girl and I'm the god artist creator. Bow down to me as your queen or king or whatever. Like that's total bullshit. It's so bullshit. It makes makes my head hurt. And like, I feel like one of the big problems that we've been having in like the Netflix era is that they do give full creative control to their filmmakers. And it usually turns out pretty bad. You know, like it's, it's not good. You, you give a great artist who's used to getting notes and having to make compromises and concessions. And like by that whittling down and like putting that effort into like really chiseling the movie into like being a great movie and like having to, to take on those notes, take on another perspective. I think it's what creates great things. But in this era, like no one's giving notes to anybody ever. They're just doing whatever the fuck they want. And I, and I don't like it. I think it mostly turns out really, really bad movies that are just like, like way too long, way too many sides, character side stories that they just don't have like the gravitas or weight of a, of a movie from like the older days. You know, and so I just feel like I think notes are important. I think like, you know, I, I don't really know how Apple is doing their 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 system, how they're running their studio or whatever. But like it feels like they're following like a traditional studio pattern where they're actually like holding their their filmmakers accountable and like going through a process where they're not just like letting them one run rampant as these little like, you know, auteurs like running running a whole series and just doing whatever they want. Because everything I've watched on Apple for the most part has been great you know and i just think that i don't know they must be doing something differently than like the netflixes or even the amazons of the world that are just like okay you know madam or sir creator like you are all knowing and all wise go off and make your movie take all the money you need don't ever worry about budgets don't ever worry about anything just do whatever you want it's like i think that's a terrible terrible way to make art and so this idea that they like are these digital creators are like oh I have to, you know, take away my creative control. It's like, yeah, yeah, maybe you should have your t- creative control taken away. Maybe it is good to like have to like, you know, answer some notes and address some concerns from other people. Maybe you aren't like the genius that you think you are. So that's my takeaway. Completely off, <laughs> <laughs> off the off the grid. But yeah, that's what that's what I took away from reading this this article. <laughs> Did you have you been following the rise and fall of Taika Waititi as of late? N- not really. <laughs> like no. it was like everyone's obsessed with Taika Waititi for years years, right? Like we all love him. I still love him. But then all of a sudden this like Twitter backlash has been percolating and he made some comment about how director's cuts are always bloated and way too long and we they they're not good and like the internet got really angry at him and now all of mm-hmm. a sudden it's like Taika can do wrong. It's very interesting <laughs> like the He's right. He's yeah, right. Director right. cuts are not better. James Cameron's director's cut of Aliens is not better. Wait, than... but I think Abyss director's cut is better from what I remember. Oh, I was, I guess I was I wasn't thinking of Aliens as much as Terminator 2. The Terminator 2 cut is the one okay. that I, I always watch the original. I don't watch the director's cut because it's just like it's longer, it's there slower. There's some exceptions where the director's you know, cut is better. I think there's some exceptions, right? Maybe. I didn't think of it from from the perspective that you came at it. I came at it from like a filmmaker being forced to 
past influencers for some reason. Like I kept thinking about the commercial value of influencers as we as I read that article and I was thinking about like the positives, right? Like people who came from the YouTube world, like Rachel Zegler or even like a Justin Bieber, say what you will. Like he's a great singer. Like he may be an annoying figure, but he's a great singer. And there there are these people who come out of what seems like a more democratic system of art making, like just creating a YouTube channel and gathering followers. But then you have something like someone like Spielberg saying like, I have an open casting call, open casting call. And then you find someone with like Rachel Zegler, who has like millions of followers, right? It's like, it's not about democracy or meritocracy. It's still about who can sell me the most amount of tickets for my movie. And I was thinking about You know, there was a remake of Valley Girl a few years ago where Logan Paul was cast in that. And then you think about, I had a friend whose producers encouraged her to cast an influencer in her first feature. And and that's what's annoying is like, oh, let's use online creators as stunt casting for our films. Like that, that bothers me a lot. But I do actually, I don't know, I can't, I do think there are way too many cooks in a art kitchen sometimes. And I don't love the way the Hollywood system works. And I would like creators to have more creative freedom. But as long as they're being held, as long as they can explain why they're doing what they're doing, right? As long Mm. as the studio executives are like, I have a note. And then the director goes, here's why I did this. And as long as they have an argument for why they did it, I'm on board. I want to give them that freedom. Yes. Too much freedom is bad, though. (laughs) I think. (laughs) I, I think like, yeah, you, you should be able to answer for your creative decisions, you know, and you should be able to answer for why this is really important to do it this way. Yeah. But like, you know, when you're trying to, when you come out with like a over four hour long gangster movie that doesn't need to be four hours long, it's like stupid. <laughs> like you're never going to make a movie as good as, you know, any of the old, you know, Scorsese movies, Departed, whatever. Like Departed to me is like the last great Scorsese movie. There's no more good Scorsese movies oh. after The Departed. Oh, Underline. <laughs> I mean, Irishman is Irishman's fine. <laughs> you it's know, whatever. Good. It's a good movie. It's good. It's not great. It's not a classic. It's All not right, like I'm an, pulling an, up an iconic. Yeah. What else? You know, I used to Hugo? be like the world's biggest Martin Scorsese fan. I, I love Scorsese. Scorsese. I had like a cake of his face for my birthday. Like oh, I met really? him and I got to shake his hand and I still feel the softness really? of his oh, hand man. on my hand. But he's like one of the reasons why I'm a, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Wolf of Wall Street's a fun movie, I think. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that movie exists. Yeah. I just feel like, like, well, the Irishman was supposed to be like his great, like, opus, you know, like his return to this, this genre that he like has made like the best movies in the genre. And it was just like a pale, paled in comparison to his previous work. I mean, it, and, and almost mainly because it was too long. Like if it had been shorter, it would have been so much better. I didn't think it was too long. I did Really? Not. Yeah. Really? I will, I will oh, give man. Scorsese every indulgence though. I really will. I mean, I'm yeah. very about and you, you and everyone else apparently. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> Tarantino too. Oh yeah. man. Feel the same way about Tarantino and feel the same way about like art house European directors who just like show me like a clear glass bottle for three hours. Like I'm still, (laughs) I'll be like, yes, I will get something from this moment from you. So I'm more on the fence of, I'm on the other side of the fence from you, I think on this one. Sounds like it. I'm the one to watch a bottle of clear painted glass for three minutes. I get so frustrated. Like if a shot is too long and like, it's not telling me anything that I need to know and it's not beautiful enough i'm bored <laughs> like 
it either has to be the most amazing, beautiful thing in the whole world or communicating really important either character or story, you know, information. If it's not doing one of those three things, it's fucking bullshit wasting my time. Like, I don't want to watch a shot that's like, you know, five seconds too long if it's it's not fulfilling one of those three, you know, things. What about when Richard Leeds was on the show and he talked about the slowness and the, the fact that certain art house films require active observers, right? Like a Mm -hmm. patient, someone putting things together and not having it spoon fed to them. That I like. I'm okay okay with that. But I just feel like that's not always what's happening, you know, in, in, in the instances I'm referring to. I don't think we have time to talk about this other thing. We've talked too much already. We're good. Liz, you want to take us out? <laughs> yeah. You can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. I'm going to stop this blurb for one second with a sincere request. If you listen to the show and you have not written in or interacted with us on social media or email or anything, please do. We're trying to get in touch with more listeners and And for a while, it's been the same smattering of usual suspects who are lovely and we adore them. But we're trying to figure out who else listens. So please reach out. And that's podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. We also want to shout out the International Screenwriters Association, an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer, www.networkisa.org, to benefit from the smattering of services they offer. Thanks to Mikhail Chowdhury for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoot, for doing the editing. Thanks to Sana Sony for connecting us to Mikhail. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening. Talk to you next week. One of the things that you could have no expectations in or maybe low expectations in is joining our Patreon. <laughs> Go to www.patreon.com slash podcast. I don't know. Is that bad? Is that a terrible, terrible segue? It's like, no one's making money, but you could give us money. Like, that's what, <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs>